with stops in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. We entered the area to come upon a small tent set up within feet of the... <laughs> okay. From Boogie Land Media, this is On Carlson Drive, a dusty little dirt road of memories from the wit and whimsy of Wendy Bonifield. Today's episode, our generation's shared story, remembering 9-11. It's all part of our story. It's the same story all over the country, but different. Mine starts with the garbage man. I was getting Erin, our little first grader, ready for school and caring for my infant Grace as her toddler sister Hannah tried to make her laugh when Randy came back into the house after taking the garbage out, pulling it to the curb barely in time for the garbage man to pick up. That's who told us. Do you guys know what's going on? No, what's happening? Go turn your TV on, man. You won't believe it. So Randy turns on our TV and we sit, stunned, along with the rest of the country as we watch the second plane plow into the World Trade Center tower. You are right, garbage man. I do not believe this. What is happening? I watch in disbelief for a little bit, but soon decide this is too much for my little ones to watch, so I take them into the next room and continue getting Aaron ready for school. Randy continues to watch the horrific scene unfold. Oh my gosh, he says. This draws me back to the TV only to see the collapsed towers. Oh my gosh, I echo. It's time for Aaron's school bus to come and pick her up for school. We go outside to wait for the bus that picks her up right in front of our house. As we sit on the front porch steps, an airplane flies overhead. Aaron grabs my hand, Mommy. It's okay, baby. It's just on its way somewhere. Of course, I didn't know at the time that it was on its way back to the closest airport, just like every other plane in the sky. In fact, we learned later that Randy's brother was stranded in Canada, one of the many people stranded all over the world because of grounded planes. Aaron goes off to school, so Randy and I spend the rest of the day in front of the TV, following the unfolding events trying to make sense out of what we were witnessing. We hold our little ones, deriving a small amount of comfort from them. They're too little to understand what is happening. We all have our stories of that day. They are all different, but they are all the same. Disbelief, sorrow, anger, fear. It's one of those days you remember where you were when you first heard about it. Aaron remembers a little bit about that day, mostly our fear and disbelief. She remembers the plane flying overhead and being afraid. My other two girls do not remember anything from that day. In November, such a short time after this world-changing event, Randy was invited to New York for a conference with the Salvation Army. I would like to share with you Randy's description of the day he visited the disaster site. 
I had been invited to the Salvation Army's headquarters and training college by my friend Mark to provide music for some events in the New York area, almost two months to the day. We had several hours of margin on the second day of my visit. Would you like to visit Ground Zero to see the work the Army is doing there, he asked. Sure, I replied, not entirely certain what that would mean. Knowing I would be going as a Salvation Army representative, I dressed in full uniform and tried to prepare for whatever was coming my way that day. The car ride through the streets of the city was cordial but quiet. As a Midwesterner from the heartland, I had no idea a city could be packed this tightly on top of itself and was taken aback when we arrived at the Salvation Army's New York headquarters, situated in what I recall was just an old high-rise building stuffed into an overcrowded city block. I remember the chaos inside the headquarters as we went to collect my official credentials. The flurry of activity, weary workers blankly acknowledging our presence and passing by quickly, getting my photo taken for a badge that would grant me unmerited access to places where I felt unqualified and unnecessary. I remember the quietness of my heart and mind as we approached, so unsure of what I was about to witness. I was warned of the smell, that it was something that would remain with me for a long time, accompanying the recurring thoughts and memories. When we arrived, we began to walk through the multiple security checkpoints and Salvation Army service areas. A food tent with a full working kitchen that became known as Cafe Florida, where more than 10,000 hot meals could be prepared and served each day. Tents where supplies were gathered and which served as places of refuge for the weary workers. I remember the sense of being overly conspicuous. Dressed in full Salvation Army uniform, as volunteers buzzed about us working and serving. I was given a hard hat with a Salvation Army shield on the front and instructed to put it on. It was then that I realized that my friend was taking me not just to see these service areas, but we were headed to what became known as the pit. The place I had only known in pictures and news stories as Ground Zero. I was being given unimpeded access to a site that was not mine to have, and all because of a badge and a uniform. We entered the area to come upon a small tent set up within feet of the pit. Early on in the recovery process, counseling tents and hydration stations had been set up for easy access to the workers. This became the place where Salvation Army representatives served and prayed for firemen and others as they recovered the bodies of victims. Finding myself here, I was both humbled to have been given access to this place, the site of perhaps the most tragic event in U.S. history, as well as convicted that I should be standing on such holy ground, this place on earth where nearly 3,000 souls found their end. I hadn't come there to serve, I was simply there to visit, to perhaps encourage those who were serving, to report what I had seen to others back home, I suppose. I heard the stories of what had taken place in this tent. It had become a place of refuge and respite for weary workers in the emotionally draining work of recovery. Often a cool drink or a quick snack would be offered. 
The Salvation Army provided gas masks, clothing, and lip balm, as well as a place to just rest for a moment. I was told that early on in the recovery process, the pit was so hot it would melt the soles of the shoes of the workers sifting through the rubble. The workers would come over to the tent where they would sit down, and Salvation Army volunteers would kneel down, remove the workers' boots, and wash their feet. They provided them with a new set of work boots and helped them put them on and pray with them in preparation for their return to work. To this day, there are pictures in my mind of what I saw, images that will never be removed. I was there early enough in the cleanup process that the ragged remains of one of the buildings still stood, a disintegrated shell of what once was. In front of it, a pile of rubble with steam still rising in the cold November air was being meticulously excavated, twisted and jagged metal protruding from the ground. The rubble was covered in white, as if a fine powder had been sprayed over the entire scene. Large machinery had been brought in to begin moving the building's remains to recover that which would be found deeper. Then, a worker came over to the tent. He saw Mark and me standing there in full uniform with a few of the other volunteers who were dressed to serve. He made a beeline over to us and began to thank us for the work the Salvation Army was doing at the site, as if we were the responsible parties for what was taking place. He spoke of the service he had been provided, the care which had been given to him by Salvation Army workers, the profound gratitude he had for the work they were doing. Then we shifted to him, how he was holding up, the people he knew who had been lost. His emotion overtook us. We talked, we prayed, we cried, and he returned to his work. That night, as I sat down to remove my shoes, I looked at them for the first time. My once black shoes were covered in white ash. I paused to wipe them off, but thought otherwise. I decided the day needed to remain with me a bit longer. Randy and I led a choir of young people for the Salvation Army, the Mocan Gospel Choir. We were in the fourth year of leading this choir. It was made up of young people from the ages of 13 to around 22, as well as other leaders who sang with the group and led small group Bible studies as part of our rehearsal. We really loved leading this group. The summer of 2002, we planned a trip to New York with stops in Columbus, Ohio, Niagara Falls, and Detroit, among others along the way. It was a wonderful group of people. Randy and I loved these kids. We loved singing with them. We loved spending time with them. After our concert that evening, we traveled to the site of the World Trade Center disaster. We hadn't planned the outing. Our host suggested it. However, the visit was the most memorable experience of our trip. It hadn't even been a full year since this terrible event took place. There was a makeshift ramp set up for people to walk up and look over the site, but it was late and the ramp was closed. 
As we pulled up to the site, Randy and our host, who was a Salvation Army officer, got off the bus to investigate. A police officer stopped them, and they told him we were a choir from the Salvation Army. The police officer opened the ramp, saying, Anything for the Salvation Army. Many of us had tears streaming down our face as we looked over the crater. There were still some large beams crumpled here and there. At the far side stood a cross made from the beams of one of the buildings as a result of the destruction. All along the ramp were pictures of people who were lost, pictures that were spontaneously placed on these makeshift walls. All around the fence were flowers, candles, balloons, teddy bears, all kinds of memorials One of our kids took his choir shirt off and placed it along the fence, along with all the other memorials. We all stood there in our own thoughts, knelt along the fence and prayed, hugged each other and cried. I was proud of our kids. I was proud of my association with the Salvation Army. And I was proud of my country. It's hard to believe it has been 20 years since that fateful day. My emotions still overwhelm me when I look back on those horrific scenes. Yet, I force myself to look at them. I don't want to forget. It's important to remember. I sometimes think about this event in connection with the last time America was attacked on its own soil, at Pearl Harbor. That feels like ancient history to me, yet I know for the people who were alive at that time, they felt some of the same emotions I felt on 9-11. My grandpa was 19 years old when Pearl Harbor was attacked. He signed up to join the Marines on that day. My daughter Erin, who barely remembers 9-11, is a teacher now, and her students have no connection to what happened. For them, it is only a historical event. Even though so much changed after those two towers fell, they don't know the difference. We all live in a post-9-11 world. However, some of us remember the before. Where were you on that fateful day? Well, I remember that you guys tried to keep me out of the kitchen. We had that little, uh, like, tiny screen. How? What was the size of that TV? I don't know, uh, 10 inch? But it sat on the counter, and you guys were watching it on the screen and trying to keep us out. I don't remember what Hannah was doing, like, if she was trying to see too. But I remember trying to get in the kitchen, and you kept us out of the kitchen. But I still, like, saw past your legs i mean because you were still captivated by what was going on so as much as you were trying to keep me out of the kitchen you were also distracted and so i kind of i remember seeing like the smoke on the screen later sitting on that green plaid chair that we had and you telling me like oh like explaining that there are bad people in the world and just trying to explain it to a six-year-old in a way that would 
make sense when nothing made sense. But I could tell that you were scared. And I think that's what I remember. I remember you guys trying to keep me out of the kitchen and being able to tell that you guys were scared, which made me scared. (laughs) Interestingly enough, my husband is in energy marketing. The first thing I remember is him saying, go turn on the TV. I can't talk. They had been on the Squawk Box, which is basically just a radio, two-way radio, with people on the top floors. I remember the TV being on and thinking, this is so wrong. This was before the second plane hit. And then the second plane hit. And it's hard to explain. I'm actually feeling it in my body now as I talk about it. But this uh, icy cold feeling of, oh, dear God, this is evil. And I was afraid in a way I've never been afraid before. And here we were, we were in Kansas, you know, we were in the middle of <laughs> middle of the country, but to see this happening, to see our country being attacked this way and not even knowing the fullness of it yet, but then thinking after a moment, those buildings can't stand. Thinking, I was so silly. I didn't know anything about construction or I didn't know anything about that, but this feeling in my gut that they were coming down. A friend of mine came over and we cried and hugged one another and I said, I have to go get my children. And I mean, looking back, it might have been a little bit silly, but I needed to know my babies were close to me. They were all in elementary school. And I checked them out of school and brought them home. And after the towers actually fell, I mean, we just sat in the backyard or the front yard or wherever and watched them play. And it was surreal. And not knowing what tomorrow was going to bring or the next moment was going to bring, we didn't know the scope of it. And over the next weeks, there were families that we knew grieving over lost ones. That day and those images will never leave me. And I'm so thankful at that moment. I was so thankful that Bob was not on a trip to New York, almost feeling guilty for the safety we had. Even 10 years later, when we were still, quote unquote, at war, and my son went to Marine boot camp. All I could think of was that day and remembering why his little patriotic heart was wanting to go in and do something, you know. There is a a national grief over this, much the same way I think our parents felt that with Pearl Harbor or Kennedy's death. You know, you look back on it and you, it is a national grief. It doesn't matter where you fall on politically on the map or religiously or If you're an American, those things hit you. I remember I was a para at the Lewisburg Elementary School, and my girls were in kindergarten and fourth grade. And I remember that morning started off like a normal school day, but very early, the whole feeling of the school changed. And little by little, room by room, we started hearing things. One of our secretaries and our principal had a family member that worked in the World Trade Center. They must have gotten word of what had happened and then turned on a TV or something in the office and were monitoring everything, but it was very personal to those members of our staff. Um, We were trying to shield the kids from knowing so much what was going on, 
but parents started showing up at the school to take their kids home. Um, we were told um, because of the flight patterns and things around um, Kansas City, we were not allowed to go out on the playground for recess, just trying to be really protective until we had more information about what was really a threat. And I remember even as my uh, as my own mom heart, <laughs> I remember going and checking on my girls. You know, they didn't have a clue what was going on. Marissa was in kindergarten, but at that time she was in half-day kindergarten. So my mother-in-law was picking her up from school and came and picked her up. And I remember just that longing of wanting to take my girls home and just hunker down in our home and be safe. I also remember that Tony was traveling. It, when something like that happens, I just remember wanting us to be together where I could lay eyes on everyone and we could just assess everything as our small family. Um, and yet that wasn't possible. So we finished the school day. A lot of kids left early. A lot of parents came our district was all keeping communication between the elementary and the middle and the high school. Um, everyone was on the plan of, you know, trying to control the chaos and not let it spread, not knowing how to handle those situations as a staff member, trying to keep kids safe and trying not to let there be a lot of fear and unrest, but also trying to love each other well, like as a staff. I just remember all of us felt numb and um, just shock. We were just in shock. It was a surreal thing to be in a school. You're with the most innocent kids. I mean, we were K through fifth grade. That was really hard when you yourself were experiencing fear. It was a surreal time, especially in the small town of Lewisburg, Kansas. I mean, you know, we were just a small town. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years. It's hard to believe. I was a bureau chief for the Indianapolis Star at the time, and we put out a daily newspaper that uh, was part of the Indianapolis Star every day. And so we had just finished our planning meeting for the day and had a pretty clear plan of what we were going to do for the next day's paper. But as you know, news doesn't always follow deadlines at newspapers, and it sure didn't that day. I got a call from one of our reporters who was at a police station imploring me to turn on the TV in my office and watch what was happening. And like a lot of people, I at first thought it was some kind of preview or trailer for a new movie. And then very quickly realized not only did our whole day's plans change, but our lives would never be the same. Because we weren't pushing for uh, the main newspaper, but a section of it that covered a couple of counties south of Indianapolis, one of our assignments was to figure out how to localize the story. And of course, at that point, uh, I remember there were a lot of rumors. There was a plane headed into Chicago that even kind of so-called second-tier cities were being attacked, and Indianapolis might have been one of those. So our alertness was, was very high that day. Uh, I called all the reporters in. We watched some of the news together and then tried to figure out what to do to make the story more local to the people that lived in our two counties. One of the things we did end up doing is that night, uh, one of the churches, St. Francis and Claire, called a prayer meeting for the communities, and several hundred people showed up to that prayer meeting, whether they were Catholic or not. I remember 
So we covered that, and that was the main story of our coverage the next day. Our deadlines were fairly early that night for our section of the paper. And then we just had to follow those kinds of stories um, day after day after day for the next uh, several weeks. How did what happened in New York and Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. impact the people that uh, were in our coverage area in those two counties? I remember there were uh, fire departments that were just buried in cookies and cakes and pies and all sorts of baked goods out of appreciation. And of course, you couldn't find flags uh, on retail stores. We did stories about that kind of thing as well, as well as the way that people flocked to churches as well and how pastors and other faith leaders were just helping people, uh, some of the people they knew and some of the people that had never stepped inside their doors before uh, process uh, the situation on a spiritual level. And then one of the memories I have that was very clear is I think it was that afternoon or the next day, just realizing that there was no airplanes in the sky. And being near Indianapolis and the international airport there, there were airplanes and consoles in the sky all the time. And the whole office, and I think there was about a dozen of us at one point, just stood in the parking lot for quite a while, just looking up at the sky and talking about how our, our lives had changed. In 2001, I was a stay-at-home mom with a six-year-old and a two-year-old. At the time, I worked one day a week at the dental office where I still work today. I had dropped off my first grader at Leewood Elementary, and I had an opportunity to have a babysitter, Julia, taking care of our two-year-old, Laura. I was sitting out on the patio at Starbucks with my friend from Bible study named Helen Marie, and we noticed up overhead, two jets making U-turns in the sky. We thought it was so weird. We learned much later that they'd been ordered to head back to the airport where they came from. The Starbucks barista came outside and told us about planes crashing into the World Trade Center. I remember leaving there and heading for home, where I sat with sweet Julia, the babysitter, and we watched the news. I wanted to gather my children with me, and I couldn't wait to go pick up my grade schooler. We got advice that day to turn off the TV with our kids in the room. Just because they were so young, they could imagine a different jet crashing every time they saw that repeated footage. We turned off our television, and we went outside to play. I had an appointment that morning in Waldo, for an oil change, and as I got there, the mechanics were huddled around a small TV watching the news. And we were all wondering whether it was real, whether it was an accident, or whether it was deliberate. As we watched, a second plane hit the South Tower, and in that moment we knew this was no accident, this was deliberate, it was an attack against the World Trade Center, and maybe even more. Not much work got done in the office that morning, I can tell you that. We uh, just spent a lot of time around a TV in the conference room watching the news, and as the day's events unfolded, we were horrified. We went to lunch at Planet Sub, I remember, that day, and the place was packed. There was, It was hard to find a place to sit down, and it was spooky how quiet it was in that restaurant. There was a small TV in the corner that had everyone's attention. 
Uh, I remember the office closed at 3 o'clock that day. And as I drove home, I passed four different gas stations, and every one of them was a mob scene, with police directing traffic along State Line Road in front of each gas station because there were rumors flying that gas was going to be 5 or $6 a gallon the next day, and people were just panic buying gasoline. Uh, I kind of needed gas, but I needed to get home to see my family even more. And uh, as I got home, turned on the TV, sitting on the couch with my six-year-old daughter, Sarah, and she innocently asked, Dad, is this something they'll be talking about a year from today? And I said, yes, sweetie, they will likely talk about this every year on September 11th for the rest of your life. I got a call from Randy, and my brother-in-law was at the Pentagon, and the Pentagon had just been hit. And so his sister had called and said, we don't know where John is, but the Pentagon's been hit. And so went home, turned on the news, and I um, remember just almost immediately thinking Osama bin Laden because we lived in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. We'd been there for seven years. And the last year that we were there, three bombings had actually taken place in the area. One was um, an American military base, uh, kind of a housing facility out of the city. And then the, actually the third one hit in our, our city, right downtown. It was called the LSG building. Again, it was American military facility. But a lot of women would get jobs there, admin jobs and so forth, who weren't military. And half of our compound that we shared our housing with were military, and they worked in that building. So my next-door neighbor's husband was in charge of affairs for people in crisis. And so when the bombing took place, she got the phone call from her husband saying, we're putting some of the women who live on our compound, we're putting them on buses and sending them to our house. They're traumatized. They're a mess. They need to get cleaned up. They can't go home to their children the way they look now. And so she called me and she said, can you help me? I immediately ran over to her house, and we started receiving these women and torn clothes and, you know, sooty faces and scrapes and bruises. They were, they were in shock. And so I went around to their homes. Most of them had maids in that culture and just collecting, like, can you give me an outfit for her? And, you know, just letting them get cleaned up and put on real clothes before they went home. So seeing some of those images just you know, immediately tied me back to what we had experienced in Riyadh. I think it was just such a shock because when it was happening in Riyadh, you're in their territory. So you, you're always kind of aware, like anything can happen here. You're always aware that we could, we could leave at a moment's notice. You just, you know, the war had happened before we got there. Um, and so you just always kind of feel like you're not in your own land. Anything can happen. But being here and feeling like when we left, whew, we left all that behind. You know, that's one thing we don't have to worry about being here. And, you know, having three kids off at school and then having my brother-in-law in the Pentagon and watching this unfold on the news, it's like my mind couldn't quite put together. It's like those two worlds kind of collided for me. And something I thought we'd never think about again is now just became part of our life here in the States, just like it was when we were in Riyadh. So I grew up in California, so I'm on the West Coast. So I'm three hours behind New York. I went out to the kitchen. The TV was already on, but no one was in the living room. 
And so I was making cereal or something, and I looked and I saw. What what I can't re- really remember is if both towers had already been hit, or if it was just the north tower. I think was first, but I remember watching the news and there was still confusion. They were still saying this is a terrible accident on the news. Something oh something has gone wrong. A plane accidentally must have malfunctioned. And as I was leaving for school, the narrative was slowly changing to, okay, now we're getting reports that government buildings are shutting down, that the president has been kind of evacuated from, you remember that famous photograph of George W. Bush? He's in a classroom with a bunch of kids and he's reading to them and there's an agent whispering to him. The news agencies were just starting to pick up like, oh, the, the, the government thinks this is something else. My sister and I drove to school and didn't really say anything in the car. I think we were just kind of in shock still. And we got to school and our friends are just starting to tell us more. And we didn't have no smartphones. It's like if you're not in front of a TV, you don't know what's going on. Um, I got to my first class and it was really interesting. The teacher took the approach of this is a normal day. So no TV, no news, no nothing. Lesson plan. And looking back, I'm frankly shocked that the school districts didn't say no one should be here right now. And we were in Los Angeles where theoretically it's like if they're going to try to hit another city today, this is the city they're going to try to hit. So my first teacher was like, by the book, I don't think any of us learned a single thing. And then slowly throughout the day, basically every class was just watching TV. Every teacher from there on out was just like, This is just a moment. And I do remember one of my teachers, and this stood out to me at the time and impresses me more even now. He's my history teacher, Mr. Rasmussen, turned off the TV and just said, let's talk about what's happening and actually kind of led a discussion with these teenagers who were processing their own fear, their own grief. And I think that was like my second to last class for the day. All of my memories of 9-11 are at school the morning of. I don't remember talking to my parents about it. I don't remember much with my sister. But I remember the first time I flew again and just the irrational fear that came with that. Getting used to the new federal regulations to get into the airport, all of those changed. And I remember flying for the first time and being really, really freaked out. There was one thing I remember as a teenager that really affected me emotionally in a way that I couldn't control my reaction. Because high schoolers, right, were cool. Even that day, there was a lot of posturing and we're fine, but no one probably felt fine. But I think when I saw images of people jumping out of that building, knowing that there was a person who that was all they had left to do, there was nothing else they could do. That was really haunting. It still is. Those, those images in particular are still, I think, the most haunting of 9-11. And so even now when I see those, they really, really, they affect me. was a unique moment that left an indelible mark on our lives. Our commitment to one another is to never forget, to solemnly remember, and to continue telling our stories. 
We want to thank all our contributors for this week's episode. To Aaron, Melissa, Debbie, Jeff, David, Emily, Deborah, and Andrew. Thank you for your vulnerability, for opening up to us with your stories, helping us to tell our shared stories.